going to read a passage that is, uh, I have no doubt, very well known uh, to many of you, if not all of you, in the Roman letter and chapter 11. The Roman letter and chapter 11. From verse 11. And I'm reading from the standard version of 1901. The American Standard Version. I say then, did they, that is the Jewish people, stumble that they might fall? God forbid. But by their fall salvation is come unto the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. Now if their fall is the riches of the world and their loss the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness but I speak to you that are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I glorify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy them that are my flesh, and may save some of them. For if the casting away of them is the reconciling of the world, what, will, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? And if the first fruit is holy, so is the lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and thou, being a wild olive, wast grafted in among them, and didst become partaker with them of the root of the fatness of the olive tree, glory not over the branches, but if thou gloriest, it is not thou that bearest the root, but the root, thee. Verse 24. For if thou wast cut out of that which is by nature a wild olive tree, and wast grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these which are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, have you ignorant of this mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceits, that a hardening in part hath befallen Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. Even as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer. He shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as ye in time past were disobedient to God, but now have obtained mercy by their disobedience, even so have these also now been disobedient, that by the mercy shown to you they also may now obtain mercy. For God hath shut up all unto disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past tracing out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? 
or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him and shall be recompensed unto him again, for of him, through him, and unto him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Shall we bow in just a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, as we come to thy word, we need the blessed ministry of the person of the Holy Spirit. And, O oh Lord, we pray that thou wilt cause that ministry to be fulfilled in our midst through this day. Take now this word, Lord, and make it live to us. May it not just be something that interests and instructs our minds, but may it be a coming into our heart of the word of Christ to dwell there richly in all wisdom. Hear us, O Lord. We thank thee and worship thee in the name of our Lord Jesus. Now, I want uh, in these moments left to us this morning to address myself to a problem that underlies the whole work of prayer for Israel. It has been one of the joys in the latter years of my ministry uh, to see and to watch, not that I've had much to do with it, but it has been dear Ken, who, Barnett, who has borne all the brunt of the uh, work of the burdens of the problems and everything else. But it has been a great joy to me to watch this grow from a little uh, room meeting to uh, somewhere over, I think it was in Chislehurst we had it. Uh, and then we got here in the back in this somewhat dreary uh, uh, meeting in the back here and then finally burst through into here, thank God. It is gratifying in days when Israel is becoming more and more isolated to see a place like this getting fuller and fuller year by year. And if every one of us becomes a real intercessor and a prayer warrior, this kind of work has been marvelously justified. Um, if all it is is to tickle people's prophetic fantasies, to sort of somehow or other uh, give them a few more ideals, a few more theories, uh, a little bit more knowledge that puffs up. I don't think that these kinds uh, of meetings nor this work has been justified. But if it means that we begin, however dimly, to get an understanding of the times in which we are living and the Christic nature of them and the uh, burden that is upon the heart of our God uh, for the church and for the Jewish people, then I believe uh, that this work has been vindicated and all the conflict and battle and antagonism explained. It seems to me that there are two things over which if we have no understanding of them, we are totally at sea. The first is the church. And thank God for the greater and greater understanding that there has come to the people of God that a church is not a building with a spire or a belfry or a tower or some uh, sort of sacred um, premises, uh, but it is made up of living stones. 
and that it is the body of the Lord Jesus. Thank God for this, this uh, revelation that has come to the people of God through the moving of the Spirit in the last decade or two. But it is a very strange thing that when people don't see what the church is, they can often be very enthralled with the Israel question. And when they see what the church is, they seem to shut out the Israel question as if it's a diversion or some kind of um, uh, sort of blind alley, a cul-de-sac. It is partly because of uh, the different theological outlooks on the question of Israel. There is, of course, there is, of course, that theological out, outlook which does not see any place for Israel at all. Therefore, we only pray for Jews in the sense that we want to convert them. We're not, we're not interested in anything else. In fact, very often, inherent in the very attitude is a, a feeling that the Jews have not only rejected Jesus, uh, but uh, what's come on them serves them right. It may not be put in so many words, but it is an unwritten attitude. Then there is another view that believes that God really wanted everything for the Jewish people, that when they did not receive their Messiah, he was deeply grieved and angered and took away uh, the kingdom from them and gave it to the Gentiles. And uh, when the last Gentile's been saved, uh, Jesus will come back, the Jews will see Jesus physically with their eyes and all be converted in an instant. Now this again is quite a widely held view. And I am often asked by those who hold such views, who have a real concern for the, for the Jewish people, and believe that God has a purpose for them, but they believe that in the millennium they're going to be the missionaries and the church is evidently going, going to go into the unseen uh, in the heavenlies. Um, it's a kind of two-tier system. Then they ask, oh, what on earth are you doing praying for the Jewish people? They're going to be saved anyway. There's no need to labor in prayer uh, for them because when Jesus comes they will see him and they're all going to be converted. So our business now is to get on with the preaching of the gospel, get the church built up, and leave the rest. Now, I must say, as I see it, that somewhere the truth lies between these extremes. And whilst we, it's a controversial subject, and I have no doubt that there are many different outlooks gathered here, whilst we are totally one in the matter of the purpose of God in general um, for uh, the church and for Israel, we may differ on a lot of the details. I would just like to take a little while to give you what I feel should be the ground for our support and above all our intercession ministry for the Jewish people and for Israel. And the first thing I would like to underline is the glorious promise. And the glorious promise is found here in, for instance, Romans and chapter 11. In this kind of word, verse 11 and 12. Now, but it, by their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles to provoke 
them to jealousy. That is to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. Now, if therefore is the riches of the world and their loss the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? I cannot understand anybody who believes in the authority and inspiration of the word of God being able to read such a statement in the word of God and believe that there is no future for the Jewish people. Furthermore, in a rare moment of unity, all theologians, liberal and conservative, are agreed that their fall refers to a national fall of the Jewish people and their loss to a national loss of the Jewish people. Now, if this is so, and even the rabbis agree that there has been a fall of the Jewish people and a loss to the Jewish people in the first century um, of this era. Now, if this is true, who has the right to say that the last part of the statement is individual? That if the first part of the statement is national, the last part is individual. In other words, their fall was national, their loss was national, but there is no national restoration, only an individual coming into the fullness of God through the Lord Jesus. I have no doubt that the only way to come into the fullness of God is through the work of the Lord Jesus. Over this I have no problem at all. But if the first part of the statement is to do with a national fall and a national loss on the part of the Jewish people, their fullness must refer to a national fullness of the Jewish people. If there has been a fall and a loss, then the word of God says there is going to be a fullness. And the words are put in such a marvelous way. How much more their fullness? There's no ifs and buts. How much more their fullness? Go on to verse 15. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, everyone again is agreed on this. The casting away of them was not the casting away merely of individuals. It was the casting away of national institutions, of the priesthood, of the temple, of the national entity, as it were, um, of the Jewish people. Now, if the casting away of them was the, the reconciling of the world, what will the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Now, this receiving of them, is it merely individuals? Just here one and there one and somewhere else another? Surely if the casting away of them was a national thing, the receiving of them must be a national matter. Now, I can't help you that once we begin to look at all this, it all becomes very exciting. For instance, as we go on, it says in verse uh, 18, uh, If thou gloriest, it is not thou that bearest the root, but the root thee. And then people will immediately say to me, Ah, just wait, just wait, just wait. The root is Christ. The root is Christ. 
the root is the Messiah, I have no doubt about that. But will you also, in the interests of correct exegesis, please listen to this in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and thou being a wild olive, that's a wild olive branch, was grafted in among them. Did you hear that? Among them. And has didst become partaker with them. So the Gentile believer has, according to the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God in what he wrote to the Roman church, the Gentile believer has been grafted in amongst the true believing Jews. In other words, those who were the real Israel of God in the Old Covenant. They have been grafted in amongst them. It's not just that you've got a direct sort of grafting into the root. Thank God you have a direct relationship to the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. But having come into such a relationship through him, you find you're among the branches. And then it says, no matter if those branches stretch to the ends of the earth and have become so multitudinous that you find it very hard to find a single natural branch, don't glory over the branches. As if the whole thing is Gentile in origin. Glory over the fact that you don't bear the root. The root bears you. And the root has borne the natural branches that have stood by faith. Now goes on the apostle and says that... Um, if thou wast cut out of that which is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into um, a good olive tree, how much more shall these be grafted into their own olive tree? Some people have written to me as a result of my first book and said to me, we cannot agree with you about this olive tree. Their own olive tree refers to their own olive tree. It is amazing to me. I mean, these are good people who really study the word. They're not, they're not just empty-headed folks that have just got some superficial knowledge. People who really know the book. They write to me. I've had more than a few letters on this subject. They say, it's their own olive tree. You're making a mistake because in Zechariah 4 it says there are two olive trees. One on either side. We are in one, they are in the other. I can't understand the exegesis. It comes from taking one verse and no regard for the rest of the verses. Because it says, you were grafted in among them. The natural branches, wild olive branches, grafted in among them, the natural branches, all stand by faith. Now we shall say a little bit more about this later in the day. But what I all only want to say to you is this, have we not here got a tremendous promise? Is there not here a glorious promise? of the salvation of natural branches, not just a few, but multitudes of those natural branches? Is there not somewhere here an inference, an implication, if not an outright promise, that something's going to happen at the end of time when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and natural branches are going to be grafted back into their own olive tree? And if 
There have been multitudes and multitudes without number of wild olive branches grafted in to the natural olive tree. Can we not look for something marvelous in the last days whereby God will take away the hardness which has befallen Israel in part? And multitudes and multitudes of Jewish people will come back into their own olive tree. If this is a glorious promise, what a foundation for prayer, what fuel for intercession, what a, a, a basis for standing together in support with this people until the miracle happens. Why, the apostle goes on, listen every one of you to it. For I would not, brethren, have you ignorant of this mystery. As David intimated, this word mystery in Greek is a word that speaks of a secret, not the mystery we think of, something nobody can ever understand, complex, difficult, you know. Well, how do you expect me to understand the mystery? Well, he's not given us these mysteries anyway. Fool to fool us? That's not the biblical idea of a mystery. The biblical idea of a mystery is it's a secret only revealed to the initiated. And if you're born of God, if you have been born of the Spirit of God, if you are in the body of the Messiah, this secret ought to be yours. There's no excuse for a single believer not to have an understanding of this, of this marvelous secret which God has revealed to us by his Spirit. And here he goes on, Oh, brethren, I would not have you ignorant of this mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceit. It is not for me to say too much on this matter, but I do feel there's been an awful lot of conceited pontificating in Christian pulpits on this matter. This kind of attitude that the Jew has no future at all, no destiny, that God has finished with them, he's washed his hands of them, they're under the judgment of God, everything's transferred now to the church, well, it's partly true. It's partly true. Everything has been, in one sense, if you could say transferred. But I don't know whether I would say transferred. I don't think God ever transferred anything. He just went on. It seems to me there's only one elect people, one truly elect people, and they're, they're all there by faith. And it means that we can look for some amazing thing toward the end of this age whereby those natural branches which have been cut out because of unbelief will be brought back and, and grafted back into their own olive tree through God-given faith. Now this dear friend of David's who said that he couldn't pray for this because he was at work amongst the Gentiles. Well, I, I don't understand, as David doesn't, I don't understand such a mentality. God isn't a civil servant. He's not a bureaucrat. <laughs> he doesn't sort of say, well, when the last single Gentile is in, we'll do it. Did he say that at the beginning? When, first of all, the, 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 um, the, the uh, Gentiles were brought into the salvation of God. Did God say, now we're finished with the Jews? Not another one saved. Well, we've started on the Gentile mission now. No, not at all. It seems to me that although it happened at Caesarea in a Roman officer's living room, in fact, Jews would continue to be saved for the next century or two. But more and more and more and more and more Gentiles came into their, uh, the Jewish people's olive tree, the true uh, 
uh, work of God. Now, I say that this is very wonderful because then the Lord, then he goes, the Lord goes on here, uh, uh, speaking to the Apostle Paul, and says this hardening in part which is befallen Israel will be done away. Uh, how marvelous. And so all Israel shall be saved. That is, those who become partakers of the commonwealth of Israel through the Messiah Jesus, and those who are of the natural stock, saved by the same grace. So all Israel shall be saved. And then he goes on as if to make it clear, as touching the gospel, they are your enemies. They are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they were beloved. No. They are beloved. That means that God loves the Jewish people in their sin and unbelief today. And he loves them in an especial way because of no other nation. Is it, is it said they are beloved for the Father's sake? Then he goes on, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. How many sermons I have heard and marvelous ones upon this verse to do with the church, to do with us. And I have never heard it related or very rarely to the Jewish people. But the little uh, word for means that primarily it has been said concerning the Jewish people. They are enemies for your sake. But beloved, uh, touching the election, beloved because of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now listen to the argument. For as ye in time past were disobedient to God, that is the great Gentile peoples, but now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, that is the disobedience of the Jewish people, even so have these also now been disobedient, that is the Jewish people, that by the mercy shown to you, Gentiles, they also may now obtain mercy. Oh, the purpose of God. Is it not amazing? No wonder the Apostle Paul says his ways are past tr tracing out. How can we fathom the counsel of God? Somehow the whole thing, it's rather like the Apostle Paul puts in another way and says, now then, you men, you are the head of the woman. But don't let any man get big-headed. Because no man has ever got here without a woman. Isn't that what he says? So he says, you're all tied up in the bundle of life. You can't have men without women. <laughs> and uh, yet in some mark. Oh, yeah, I won't go on anymore. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, it's all tied up in the bundle of life. Is it not so with Israel and the nation? Is it not so with the Jewish people and the church? That somehow other, therefore, has led in the mystery of God's election to the great ingathering of Gentiles from every part of the globe. And yet God hasn't finished with them. What really God is doing is this. He has tied us all together in purposes of grace. 
so that by their disobedience from every kindred and tongue and nation people there are those named with the name of Jesus. Surnamed with the name of God. And then in the end when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in that is when really virtually the purpose of God for the Gentiles is complete. God will melt the hardening which hath befallen Israel in part. And so all Israel shall be saved.